Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Dr. Thomas Kühne as a guest. He is Strassler Chair in the Study of Holocaust History and Director of the Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. Today, we'll discuss his most recent book, among his many publications. The book is entitled, The Rise and Fall of Comradeship, Hitler's Soldiers, Male Bonding, and Mass Violence in, 20, in the 20th Century. The book appeared with Cambridge University Press in 2017. Hello, Tomas. Welcome to the show. Hello, Michael. Uh, nice talking to you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So to start out today, Tomas, I was wondering if you could uh, discuss how your interests in the fields both of German studies and gender studies first started. Um, so basically, this is a typical new books question, but we'd like you to share a little bit of your professional biography with the audience. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I have to say that um, this interest in, in gender studies and the Third Reich and the Holocaust and the military, uh, that is, uh, came up, is kind of this, the second step of my uh, professional career. Uh, I started out uh, with my with a different topic in my dissertation, and um, this uh, the dissert, my dissertation was about electoral politics and suffrage reform in Prussia before 1914. And uh, uh, although it may not sound uh, like that, uh, it is somehow related to the book we are talking about today. Uh, in so far as um, already my earlier interest um, in, in the political culture of Prussia before 1914 was kind of motivated by that one big question that drives or has driven for a long time historians of modern Germany. And that, of course, is why did the Third Reich and the Holocaust happen? And why was it Germany that, um, that um, initiated and orchestrated and committed the Holocaust? And why, so why that um, why did the German history um, run the way it did? And my initial interest on Imperial Germany, so the time before 1914 or 1918, was, I mean, was shaped by interest in the 1980s uh, that dealt with the question whether the Third Reich was embedded or the result of long-term wrong developments of Germany, anti-democratic developments, and so on and so forth. And I did elaborate on that in this book, which uh, is, was published only in German in the early 1990s. Nonetheless, this question for why the Holocaust and why Germany and so on did, um, did continue to kind of plague me. And uh, um, so I have to say, as probably most um, people who listen to this podcast will easily notice I was not born in America. I grew up and was tra and trained in, in Germany <clears throat> uh, and moved to America only in the early 2000s. And I got my degrees in academic degrees in, in Germany, plus the PhD. And then in Germany to pursue an academic career, you have to to, to write a second dissertation on a topic that is supposed to be different than the first one. And at that time in 1992, 1993, um, I uh, got a position uh, as um, a position uh, to pursue the habilitation, as it is called, the second dissertation, in an environment that uh, was academic environment that was uh, heavily interested in in uh, in, in uh, broadening uh, gender studies. Uh, in a way that it would no longer only focus on women on women's history or women's studies, but also include uh, masculinities and men in so far as men 
uh, are shaped, do have a gender as well, and not only women. <clears throat> uh, so that was a new uh, research strand in the early 1990s that was established first in the Anglophone world and then uh, moved um, to, uh, came to Germany as well. And I found that extremely interesting and wanted to contribute to that. And at the same time, I have to say early 1990s, mid 1990s, when I made the decision about uh, this, uh, starting this project, um, there was a very controversial discussion on the role of the Hitler's army, the Wehrmacht, the regular army, as opposed to the SS, uh, in the Third Reich and uh, the relation between the regular army, the Wehrmacht, to uh, the Holocaust. And for the first time, uh, in, in Germany and in, you know, in, in general, uh, it, it became pretty clear that ordinary soldiers, so that is not SS men or policemen or you know, not any man in the apparatus of, of Himmler, but drafted Germans, ordinary Germans who had mostly not volunteered to fight on the Eastern Front or wherever, that they nonetheless were one way or another involved in the Holocaust and in other mass crimes that the German Reich committed uh, primarily in Eastern Europe and the uh, Soviet Union. And um, so this debate was that motivated me. And um, I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to understand the mindset of ordinary soldiers. Um, to understand their view. Yeah? I wanted to kind of creep into the mindsets of the ordinary soldiers and uh, understand why they did what they did, why they, uh, how they perceived the experience of war and what may have made them to <clears throat> either applaud or at least to accept or to stand by to the Holocaust, to, uh, to do nothing but um, to, to look at it. <clears throat> And um, the result of this kind of experiential history is, I mean, a history that uh, strongly focuses on the subjective perspective of historical actors, that ordinary soldiers in Hitler's army that nowadays and in the 1990s in Germany seem so strange to us and so opposed, so, uh, you know, contrary to whatever we believe in. Uh, that led to, to, the, to this project on comradeship because I realized relatively early that comradeship is kind of a light motif or the key category that um, that that the soldiers themselves used to to um, to justify uh, their actions in war that's uh, the history of this book great thank you and I, I think that that uh, lets us know about, uh, a lot about both both your interest in the field and in the book. And uh, one follow-up question I'd ask is that I think this book has a particularly interesting history uh, because if I'm not mistaken, it appeared initially in German, and this is the, the English version of the book. So I was wondering if you uh, had any thoughts about uh, kind of transitioning this from what was initially a, a book that you released in German to one that you... Uh, re-released in English and rewrote, I think, in many ways, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's true. Um, indeed, as you say, um, as I mentioned before, I, I this book is what is is kind of a, I mean, it initially appeared in German, in in German, as you say, in 2006, and uh, the way it was published back then basically was. A, kind of shortened and significantly shortened version of my habilitation, the so-called the, the so-called habilitation in Germany, the second uh, dissertation, which I had concluded in 2003 in Germany and submitted and so on. And, uh, um, and then um, <clears throat> so it, it was published in 2006, although in German, although at that time I already had moved to America and um, gotten on the position I now uh, still have. Um, the history is that I had finished this manuscript in Germany and, you know, I mean, for pragmatic reasons, published it in German, in German. Although at that time, as I said, I was already had moved to America and started publishing primarily and writing and publishing primarily in English. Um, 
I have to say, at that time already came the idea up of translating this book into English, but uh, for you know all kinds of reasons, I didn't do it uh, back then. But actually, wrote and published a different book that takes up some motives of the comradeship, the German comradeship book, but deals with the coherence and cohesion of the Nazi Volksgemeinschaft, the German society in the Third Reich more largely, not only with the soldiers. <clears throat> and uh, that book was published in 2010. And then I actually still didn't want to go back to my German book and uh, have it translated also. Um, but as it goes, um, Cambridge University Press at some point uh, asked me for a manuscript, whatever it would be. And I said, well, I mean, in the short run, I can't just write a book over the next weekend or so. <laughs> uh, but I, I still have this German book on comradeship, which I have, I did spend quite a lot of time and effort on uh, researching and writing it in, in, in German. And at that time, I kind of bothered with the fact that this book was published only in German, meaning that only historians of Germany who usually are able to read German would read it. Uh, but nobody else. And I had written this book not only for Germanists, but also for people, for you know, it's an academic book, uh, for people who are interested in, in military psychology, in military sociology, and especially in the Holocaust, more largely. Um, for people, I mean, who, who would not, now as I was in America, not necessarily read German or learn German to read that book. And uh, then I, I, I agreed on, on providing and, and writing it myself uh, rather than having it translated um, uh, to rewrite this book, this German book in English. And I, as it goes, I mean, that 10 years had passed since the publication of the German book. I did see a couple of things differently than I saw them back then with the German book. And I decided to significantly revise the entire book uh, to write it in English. Uh, that's and the result is what uh, then was published in 2017. I mean, it's just um, from an American point of view, you look at the German history of that time uh, differently than from a than you know from a German point of view. And this English version tries to catch on uh, the American. I mean, the American and Anglophone. Interest. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Tomas. And I think at this point, it might be uh, good for us to jump into the book itself. And uh, in my opinion, I think your the introduction you have to this book achieves uh, an awful lot in a small number of pages, which is quite an achievement. And on the one hand, I think it traces how views of the Wehrmacht have changed over time. And you cite, as you already have in the interview, the Wehrmacht exhibit of the 1990s uh, and the work of Omar Bartov. On the other hand, it reviews uh, past uses of the term Kameradschaft or comradeship, which is so central to the book. So I was wondering if you could explain for our audience how this book fits into the history, both of the Wehrmacht on the one hand and comradeship on the other hand. Um, well, that's a good question. And I, I maybe I should start with um different scholarly and popular views on the concept of comradeship as they prevailed in Germany back then, but also in the Anglophone world. And that's a pretty interesting thing. I mean, this concept of comradeship, I mean, military comradeships, comradeship of soldiers, that's kind of this is the epitome of male, usually male at that time, only male, solidarity in war. Yeah, it's solidarity. Comradeship is about solidarity. <clears throat> and uh, this concept, uh, interesting, in that's kind of some one of the incentives uh, for me to write this book back then, is that you see there are two entirely two opposing views on this concept. The military itself, and not only in Germany, and not only in the Third Reich, but still today or in the 1990s, in Germany, but also in America also, uh, comradeship of soldiers, I mean, in America, you sometimes call it body relations, or there are different terms for that, but it's basically the same phenomenon. 
um, that is, uh, that is, I mean, a, a major virtue. It is the epitome of solidarity in battle, the oil of fighting morale, uh, and in, 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 in more moral terms, also the epitome of the good mixed in mass death, mass destruction. Yeah, I mean, so this kind of solidarity uh, is morally good. Yeah, and it is extremely important for an army to win a battle. Uh, so that is the positive view. And on the other hand, from a more civilian or sometimes anti-militarist and also kind of feminist point of view, you, you, you find views on comradeship that are the opposite. And that is that comradeship is um, understood uh, similar to other types of male bonding as the epitome of evil. Because in this view, comradeship or male solidarity is directed against civilians, against women. It serves to cover up things like, you know, you have it, I mean, today in sometimes in police units or in uh, as a result of hazing rituals on, on university or college campuses and so on. Uh, a type of you know, male bonding as the epitome of evil directed against women, civilians, uh, and, and uh, as, a, as, a, as a social machine that drives violence, terror, destruction, and so on and so forth. So yeah, two totally opposing views. <clears throat> um, and um, these opposing views actually did already shape um, the, the historians' work on the Wehrmacht and other armies including the uh, very important and um, very important and impactful work of Omar Bartov. And uh, I sensed that there is sort of truth on both sides. And I wanted to understand the complexity of comradeship. Yeah, I wanted to understand this contradiction, this, uh, um, this, uh, this antagonism, these antagonistic views. The result is the book. And uh, wonderful. And I think then moving into your first chapter, you open uh, the first chapter with uh, what I think is a wonderful anecdote. Um, you're looking at the immediate aftermath of World War One, And here you describe how a Bavarian pastor conducted a poll of homecoming soldiers and published the results in 1926. The chapter makes much of the dichotomy between what this pastor wanted to believe about comradeship during the war and what the soldiers actually told him. So can you describe this poll more deeply and expand on why it became such a good device for sharing your views in this chapter? Yeah, that's uh, indeed a crucial anecdote for this chapter and for the entire historical phenomenon of comradeship. Uh, this Bavarian pastor, uh, the name is Schneider, uh, he uh, pulled soldiers right at the end of the First World War, 1918, and right after in 1919, uh, about their experiences in war. I mean, you have to know that this poll is not comparable to, I mean, professional standards that I use today. It's kind of an amateurish poll, yeah. Um, and but interestingly, what he found out was, I mean, he, he actually uh, put together a statistic of this, the answers of this poll, and he found out that only rarely soldiers would praise or even remember the experience of comradeship in battle or in war more largely. Only very few, I mean, minority of soldiers, 2% or so, that they had confirmed that they had experienced comradeship in war. Um, by contrast, most of these soldiers said that uh, soldiers' life, you know, in, in the rear or in the front lines or so, was usually shaped by egoism of the soldiers. Everyone wanted to survive, survive and nobody cared about the, the combats. That's about the result of his poll. Uh, and... Um, this poll was published only in 1926 as, as an attachment, an appendix to a book, kind of a moral um, a tutorial. I mean, again, the author was a pastor. 
uh, of the moral tutorial about all kinds of things, among other also about behavior in war. And in 1926, so six to seven, eight years after these, after this guy, the pastor had um, conducted these polls, uh, as you say, he wanted to believe in something different, uh, which is that comradeship actually did shape the soldiers' daily experiences. That's how he wrote it in this book, in the text. Yeah? Really contradictory. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of uh, pretty amazing. The, it's the appendix directly contradicts what the author says before. <laughs> um, the explanation for that is actually is uh, that I, that's the reason why I use this anecdote. It kind of reflects how German society more largely dealt with this experience of mass destruction in World War and try to cope with it. I mean, you have to remember the First World War was the first major war European and also German societies had experienced after a period of mostly peace in 100 years. And the experience was devastating. <clears throat> and they needed to cope with it. And the way they did it included uh, this concept of comradeship. Um, they kind of inflated uh, the uh, the um, the meaning of comradeship in war. Um, they um, I call it they established or they produced a myth of comradeship. Um, the way they uh, the the war experience were narrated and remembered in the mid 1920s and then even more in the since the late 1920s, around 1930s, and then in the Third Reich was, that it was all about comradeship. I mean, the soldiers would have experienced comradeship all the time, and it was exactly comradeship that allowed them to survive, or at least, I mean, if not physically survive, uh, then in other ways. <clears throat> um, uh, so comradeship allowed them to endure all these all this terror in war, the um, the experience of destruction and so on and so forth. And um, this kind of myth of comradeship, uh, so the claim that comradeship had ruled, had, would, uh, had ruled uh, all over the, uh, the battlefields and so on, um, also allowed the surviving veterans to claim a certain uh, moral leadership position in Germany at that time. I mean, the the idea was that um, uh, that comradeship, that the evil of war, yeah, the destructiveness of war, uh, yet had produced something good, extreme, ex exceptionally good, which was comradeship, uh, the ultimate solidarity in destruction, the idea. Um, and this idea, this myth of comradeship, helped people coping with the disastrous consequences of the war. Great. And then in the second chapter, and you distinguish between how those on the right of the political spectrum and those on the left of the political spectrum each viewed comradeship. And you highlight some important differences in their visions, but you also show how they shared certain essential messages. So... Can you expand on the points of divergence and convergence here regarding how comradeship was understood prior to the rise of National Socialism? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, what I just said before, that comradeship was in a mythic way remembered as the good of the war and something that had kind of improved the moral attitude or the moral value of the soldiers, uh, this this idea was, uh, on the one hand, controversial in German society in the 1920s, and on the other hand, not. Uh, it was controversial in so far as the rightist political camps, I mean, the conservatives uh, of different, the conservatives, mostly the conservatives and nationalists, and so on, and then also the Nazis, they did stress the vertical comradeship or solidarity, 
meaning the comradeship between officers or military leaders, NGOs, and so on, on the one hand, and the rank on file. Uh, so in this view, or kind of the rightist myth of comradeship, in this myth, the leaders, the military leaders, would always be the first to sacrifice themselves for their men, and uh, they would uh, share the worries and the material burdens and so on and so forth of their of the rank and files. And in this fashion, uh, comradeship, so as a vertical, the vertical comradeship, comradeship between leaders and uh, uh, um, ordinary men or rank and files, in this version, comradeship served as a model for a for an authoritarian society, and then in you know in 1933 even for a dictatorship. Yeah, uh, and the leftists, by contrast, did. I mean, deliberately oppose this view. Uh, well, they didn't want to have a fascist dictatorship in Germany. They denied that there was in war comradeship of military leaders with their rank and fights. They remembered, they said, well, that's a, bl a blatant lie. Uh, the officers and the military leaders and so on, they didn't care about the rank and files. Uh, they cared only about themselves. There was no comradeship, no vertical comradeship. Instead, uh, there was comradeship of rank and files, so egalitarian comradeship, directed against the leaders. Because the rank and files, they had only one uh, desire, which was to end the war. Uh, the comradeship of the rank and files was uh, driven in this mythic view by the will to survive and not so much by the will or the wish to win battles. In this fashion, I mean, comradeship, so horizontal comradeship, served in the leftist political camps as a model for a democratic egalitarian society. Now, the, 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 the interesting thing is that despite these, um, these arguments, these disputes, about the essence of comradeship, there was still some sort of convergence, as you call it, or kind of agreement. And in, in, so both sides agreed on what I had mentioned before, comradeship as the good of war, comradeship as a kind of moral, uh, moral embattlement of soldiers in war, um, which the soldiers then claimed when they came home. Yeah, and, and whether they were leftists or, or rightists, um, they could claim they were morally better than before and morally better than civilians. Um, and um, so um, on this end, both of them agreed. And they did agree because also the leftists, I mean, you have to imagine that um, about one third of the German society at that time, before, during and after the war, had a blue-collar uh, working-class background, most of them voting social democratic or communist, and uh, they had served in war, and they, they too needed to make some sense of their terrible experiences. And comradeship was just the, the concept that helped them uh, retroactively establishing some sense in these terrible experiences. All right. And I think uh, at this point, I want to pose a question that it's in, really uh, comes up in many of your chapters. I think it's important to the book as a whole, but your book is noteworthy for how it considers, and I'm quoting here, imaginings of femininity within men. And so the notion of comradeship um, was not just about martial masculine toughness, but also about vulnerability. This is a theme that you trace, uh, particularly when exploring comradeship during the Third Reich. So I was wondering if you could please discuss this matter uh, at this point for our audience. Yeah. Um, with this argument, I kind of challenge <clears throat> many views on how masculinity, not only in Nazi Germany, but especially in Nazi Germany, functioned. Uh, the, the common view is that masculinity, or as some scholars call it, hegemonic, or you know, today we might even call it toxic masculinity, uh, that this means 
only that masculinity means only or primarily physically physical, emotional, and moral hardness. The ideal man in this view is kind of embodied by the soldier, of course, was tough and aggressive in control of his body, mind, and psyche. He did not hesitate to sacrifice life and limp on behalf of the fatherland or the subordinate is individually under the command of a group of comrades, and so on. Um, so this is kind of an aggressive masculinity that glorifies toughness and so on and so forth. That's, we all know that. Um, and my point is that um, this certainly did matter. I mean, it did certainly matter for the Third Reich soldiers, no doubt of that. Um, but in the social practice of male interaction, especially uh, in or close to battlefields or in the army, in the military more largely, uh, masculinity did include more insofar as diversity, some diversity and flexibility was needed. And this allowed for the display of femininely coded behaviors like affection, tenderness, empathy, caring, and tolerance uh, toward emotional breakdowns and moments of weakness as they did occur unavoidably in uh, two soldiers in war. Yeah? And uh, that is why I, why I think one, if one wants to understand masculinity, especially soldierly masculinity, one has to um, recognize that this masculinity actually has a kind of including, exclusive nature uh, that it enabled different types of soldier men to establish male identities. It also allowed them to switch between different emotional and moral states without losing their manliness. Um, okay, and it has to be said, this all did work only so long uh, if so long uh, as the predominance of hardness was respected. Men were allowed as men to switch to these I mean, femininely coded states, but in the end, they had to switch back to the moral of hardness. I call that in a different context in this book, uh, but also in, in, I have called it in other publications, Protean masculinity um, to, 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 to address the, the fact that men could switch back and forth between hard and soft states emotional, and so on and so forth, and yet uh, be considered as real men. That's the point of it. And uh, that's uh, kind of a nice segue to uh, my next question. And I think in your chapters about the Third Reich, particularly, you consider the importance of homoeroticism within the rhetoric about and experience of comradeship. So I was wondering if you could ex explain how it played a role in the masculine identities of soldiers, especially. Yeah, homoeroticism is just one facet of this, of what I call femininely coded, coded uh, masculinities. Um, <clears throat> homoeroticism um, let alone uh, homosexuality, especially in the Third Reich, did have a tough stats. I mean, that was something that was very problematic to soldiers, and there was also uh, widespread discourse on homoeroticism among men and in the military, so publications and so on. And that was a very sensitive issue, and um, soldiers usually would actually not use the word homoeroticism, but what they practiced in, in their own intimate relationship uh, that um, often was what we now call, uh, what we would call homoeroticism. So um, physical closeness um, <clears throat> and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, that, I mean, as I have observed by studying letters of the soldiers and diaries and so on. Not all of them, it has to be said, but many of them enjoyed that kind of homoeroticism and it helped them coping with uh, the hardness of 
their daily lives of of soldiers. They enjoyed that. They would, as you know, as as I said, they would even be able to talk about it in letters and in their diaries to address it explicitly. Um, so this did play a big role for their emotional conditions. Uh, however, it has to be said, and that kind of repeats what I said before, uh, homoeroticism uh, in, in, the, in, in a masculine context or, or as, a mas- as a manly, as a, as a male feature, um, <clears throat> was allowed in this tough environment only in, as long as it was controlled by so to speak, I mean, by the primacy of hardness. In a way, I mean, it was the omnipresence of death that allowed the soldiers to display homoeroticism. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does, absolutely. And at this point, um, you know, and we've already talked about some elements of them, but I think uh, mm-hmm. it would be interesting to talk about your three chapters on World War II. And in many ways, these chapters are the heart of the book, in my opinion, at least. And you use these chapters, these three chapters, to trace uh, the initiation of soldiers into the military, uh, then their euphoria during Operation Barbarossa, and then finally the more fatalistic period at the end of the war. So in the first chapter on World War II about the initiation of men into the Wehrmacht, you discuss the competition between the civilian and military identities of the new recruits. These men were ultimately socialized to embrace what you call the manly we of the military over their civilian attachments. Can you comment a little bit on this transformation? Yeah, I'm happy to do so. I I mean, I should say that this phenomenon, uh, the socialization of the soldiers and the competition between civilian and military identities and basically the the process of exchanging a civilian identity um, uh, by a military one, that is something that was not specific for the German army of the Third Reich. That is something you find in probably any army, I mean, including the American one today. so, in order to function as a soldier, especially as a soldier in, in, in war, in battle, uh, you have to give up on your desire to survive. Yeah, your, I mean, and more largely, in order to function as as a soldier within a, a combat unit, for instance, you need to distract yourself from your individual self. You need to uh, adopt the V of the unit, yeah. Um, and this, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a psych- psychological um, requirement for any army. Uh, the interesting thing is that it was kind of inflated, morally inflated, in the gender discourse of Germany back then, but we would easily be able to observe similar mechanisms in, in other countries or other armies, in, again, including the American today. Um, and the gendered dimension of it uh, becomes clear if you consider, uh, it, it gets clear if you consider that um, that uh, this in, uh, uh, adopting the military we the was also the manly we. In other words, to become a real man, uh, mama's boy, needed to erase any infantile egocentric identities that were rooted in the female world of his family. I mean, the female world, that's the way this masculine discourse uh, defined it. <clears throat> and even um, this all was about community building, about um, about forgetting about your individual self and accepting a new identity as a man 
And this identity as a man was a collective one. It was the identity of the group. <clears throat> um, the interesting thing is that um, as I as I observed um, uh, with regard to the Wehrmacht socialization or training uh, at that time, uh, that um, this kind of community building worked on different level. What it all had in common was that it, that it meant inclusion through exclusion. So <laughs> uh, exclusion that relates to the outsider or the weakling, which is like, you know, in hazing rituals today, the preferred object of collective harassment and bullying and so on and so forth. Uh, um, and, and this role of the outsider allows the in-group uh, to develop their certain cohesive mechanisms. Interestingly, interestingly, the outsider could also be the drill sergeant uh, he as well could be the target of some kind of group solidarity, now a more egalitarian one, <coughs> the, uh, the, the, the unit of the platoon against the drill sergeant or something. <coughs> um, what I try to, to show this way is that uh, the moral grammar of comradeship always obeyed the same rule. Anything that enriched and intensified group life or social life was permissible. Uh, and in, as a consequence, comradeship served to, uh, to bring together men with different civilian identities, with different personalities, different desires, uh, by replacing their civilian identities with a new mutually shared group identity and martial morality that revolves around death, around killing and being killed. Excellent. And in your second and third chapters uh, in the section about World War II, uh, they engage the period where the Wehrmacht participated in the, some of the worst atrocities of a radically genocidal regime. So how did comradeship evolve during the war? And how did it mediate the outlook of German soldiers as they became brutally violent and consistent in their loyalty to the army and the regime? Uh, that uh, what what you uh, refer to now that leads uh, indeed in, in to to, in, to the middle of my book and um, my exploring comradeship as a emotional and moral condition of uh, the German society and especially the German army um, and its collaboration in the Holocaust. <clears throat> and comradeship, the way I uh, try to explain it is, okay, is about male solidarity and most of all it is about conformity. You are, as a good comrade, you are supposed to stick to the group, um, to to stay under the radar, if you want to put it that way, in any case to go with the crowd not to stand out in any regard. Yeah? Go with the crowd, uh, just conform. And this um, morality of conformity or this standard of conformity also included that or meant that the soldiers more or less were trained to no longer think about individual responsibility and individual guilt. I mean, basically, it is a virtue that guides people to switch off the a guilt-based morality. If you do what everyone else does, then you are fine. Don't worry about your responsibility. Nonetheless, I mean, guilt is a major feature of all Western societies and way beyond Western societies. You can't just switch off such, uh, I mean, feelings of guilt. And the soldiers did have, uh, did suffer from feelings about feelings of guilt about the criminal war. They and their army fought 
and Germany as a country fought. And they felt this kind of guilt even when they did not individually engage in any crimes against humanity, even if they did not murder Jews or uh, POWs as it happened. Uh, Still then, they knew that the army, the German army, and Germany as a nation um, did what then was later called the Holocaust. The knowledge about the Holocaust, especially the mass shootings of the Einsatzgruppen and police units on the eastern, in the eastern occupied territories, was widespread over the army and about and and, and Germany, uh, even at the home front. Uh, so the, the soldiers knew about that, and they found themselves in a conflict. On the one hand, I mean, they could not just uh, desert, okay, I'm not, not easily, and they could not just go home, and um, they had to continue serving. Uh, so they saw themselves themselves entangled, uh, in, you know, included in this machinery of destruction, genocidal destruction, as we say now. On the other hand, uh, they still felt many of them, not all, many of them felt guilty. And um, so there was a conflict between guilt and conformity. And the way this worked out in the end, the way the soldiers, I mean, tried to escape that conflict uh, was that they indulged in a cynical attitude that they suppressed moral thinking and just um, ended, I mean, just tried to switch off all feelings of guilt and went with the crowd, whatever the crowd did. That, in my view, explains to a certain degree why uh, the soldiers relatively soon, but um, even more so later in the war, during the war, um, not necessarily actively uh, themselves uh, killed civilians, Jews and non-Jews, but stood by and let it happen and observed a, I mean, seemingly indifferent attitude. That is how comradeship and the Holocaust is related. Um, And then uh, throughout this section about World War II, you utilize uh, what you and many in our profession call ego documents, such as letters and diaries. And it seems that many men reflected on comradeship here. And so how did uh, such sources help you understand uh, the men as they decided how to behave in the face of the violence on the front, uh, both with the Holocaust as well as uh, the other um, types of violence that were being perpetrated on the front? Um, Yeah, in my book, I I wanted to show how the concept of comradeship changed over time. So during the 20th century in interwar Germany, during the war, then after the war, I wanted to show the change. And I was specifically interested in how soldiers perceived comradeship and appropriated it and so on and so forth in war. And that's a methodical problem for a historian. I mean, we have plenty of memoirs and testimonies given after the war, sometimes decades after the war, that uh, indeed uh, address comradeship as an experience. Uh, some praise it, others say there was no comradeship, and so on and so forth. As I mentioned before, yeah, the, the retrospective view is controversial. And um, But I wanted to explore how the soldiers, I mean, so this testimony is given uh, 30 or 50 years after the facts, are not necessarily reliable sources to to understand what went on in the mindsets of soldiers in war. <clears throat> they are not necessarily always wrong, but um, I mean, they can be wrong. And that is why I, I did include um, ego documents, as we call it, that are close to the time of that, those experiences, such as letters and diaries, and um, I, I have to say, I think if I had not done that, if I had not uh, searched for these letters and diaries and used them, I would not have understood the complexity of comradeship. Uh, but I, what we talked about before, so feminity in mass 
liquidity and um, uh, these these uh, these um, um, antagonisms and so on. <clears throat> uh, it's it's only through uh, diaries and letters that you really are able to creep into the mindsets of of uh, historical agents in this case soldiers um, at the time of the war. And one of the uh, nice things about the book is that it does span such a long period of time. And as you said in, at the start of your previous answer, that you kind of span all of these changes over time. And you carry your study forward to the post-war period. Uh, and here you examine how veterans groups after the war used notions of comradeship to process their memories of the war. So how did veterans utilize the concept to shape historical memory about their participation in the war? and in the atrocities of the war? Yeah, that's a very uh, interesting question. And it uh, relates to a continuity of um, Germans using the concept of comradeship. As I mentioned before, after the First World War, uh, comradeship appeared as the good in war. Yeah? Soldiers who had performed comradeship in war were not monsters. They were good people, yeah? morally good people. That's what that's how they claimed it. <laughs> and this tradition, this um, uh, was this kind of continued after the Second World War. Now you have to again remember that comradeship in war actually facilitated um, genocidal warfare. But that was not something the soldiers after the Second World War, after 1945, wanted to remember, let alone to tell other people. Instead, they insisted that they had acted in war as good comrades, meaning they had been had demonstrated solidarity with their fellow soldiers. <clears throat> um, they, yeah. So they had been they had demonstrated solidarity, so they had been good people, not evil people. <clears throat> um, this was a way Hitler soldiers after 1945 could present themselves as even as pioneers of the new liberal and peaceful uh, democracy. And I mean, I, I in my publications and in my, when I lecture about that, I like to quote. Uh, a West German politician who uh, said at a veterans meeting in the 1950s, and I meanwhile I know that quote by heart, by by root. It is um, he said, comradeship, uh, mutual and that meaning mutual help, mutual commitment uh, is part of the foundation on which the new state West Germany after 1945 was built because the spiritual elements of the democratic state are respect, care, and concern for one another for the benefit of all. So that's the way, I mean, comradeship as the epitome of solidarity and caring for each other and things like that could allow the soldiers to claim um, a prominent place in the new democracy after 1945. A famous um, politician of post-war West Germany, um, the social democratic um, politician Helmut Schmidt, who became in the late 1970s uh, the chancellor of Germany, uh, prominently uh, suggested that, uh, who actually had, he had served as a soldier in the Wehrmacht, um, that uh, comradeship uh, he he, he uh, looked at comradeship exactly this way, that it uh, allowed the Germans, that it served as a model for the German society after 1945 to, to return to a peaceful um, living together, to peaceful um, uh, <coughs> uh, pattern of um, politics also. Um, and um, uh, that's exactly the that's the way uh, the soldiers of this genocidal war eventually were able to to 
forget or suppress their recollection or their remembrance of um, their involvement in, in their participation and support of the Holocaust. Great. In this book, uh, it's, uh, covers the, the rise of comradeship, but it's also about the fall of comradeship. And you trace the fall, uh, as well as the rise. And so how did comradeship precipitously decline as a meaningful concept after German unity? Well, it did not decline, decline throughout German society. It did decline. Um, in the view of younger Germans, um, I mean, obviously, as in any other society, there was a generational demographic uh, change over the decades after 1945. And this generational change kind of accelerated in the 1980s or materialized um, or became more obvious in the 1980s when members of the war generation uh, started retiring. Uh, so the, the former soldiers retired and made place for younger people. And at that time, also, I mean, uh, motivated by certain other events, for instance, very important was back then, this um, famous Holocaust miniseries that was produced in America first and then broadcasted in the late, uh, uh, or shown in TV in the late 1970s that initiated a new thinking about the Holocaust and uh, German society's <clears throat> um, uh, passivity or support of the Holocaust at, uh, during the Nazi regime. And at, so in the 1980s, Germans, <clears throat> again, not all Germans, especially younger Germans, but also older Germans, developed a more self-critical view on German society's involvement in the Third Reich regime. And uh, in this context, <clears throat> um, this positive view of comradeship that had prevailed the first couple of decades after 1945 came under fire, so to speak. <clears throat> um, it, increasingly, <clears throat> um, um, it was only the old soldiers, the Wehrmacht veterans, who praised comradeship. And then uh, it was also neo-Nazis that praised comradeship uh, in a kind of um, um, sentimental or, or romanticizing way. And that was a time when this, uh, when this uh, negative view on comradeship became more and more popular, which I mentioned before, comradeship as the epitome of color-ups, uh, of, uh, of uh, Conformity that eventually led to uh, terror against civilians, including women and children. Um, <clears throat> and um, so that was a time when German society, or more and more bigger parts of the German society, felt that all this ado about comradeship um, only contributed to obvious or clandestine Nazi attitudes and even helped to hide old war criminals, as it in some cases happened. And so uh, the, that was also the t time when, uh, you know, what now is kind of pretty um, obvious when uh, the German society as a very pacifist society, when this pacifism uh, became more popular than ever before in Germany in the 1980s and 1990s, and uh, in this pacifist view, on the pacifist society's view, comradeship became uh, symbolic of a subculture that represented the opposite of everything that civilian society held in high regard. Uh, I mean, the epitome of uh, social or group evil, so to speak. That initiated the, the basis for my argument that since the 1980s, Comradeship no longer was seen as uh, the good of war, but as I'm actually the, the the driving machine of evil in war, so to speak. It's pretty interesting in my view that um, this development, this changing view on comradeship, on, on military comradeship, um, is almost some kind of peculiarity of Germany, 
I mean, if you look at uh, American society, you see almost the opposite. In in American society, since the 1980s, uh, when the Americans, when the, the United States coped with the experience of the, the legacy of the Vietnam War, and then later on uh, with new wars in the 1990s and uh, the 2000s and so on, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., um, uh, you have a plethora of Hollywood productions and other products of popular culture that actually praise comradeship. Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan, or the TV miniseries Band of Brothers relate to the Second World War, but uh, plenty of Vietnam War movies of the, in the 1980s already uh, praised, in a way, comradeship the same way as the German society did it in the interwar period, in the Third Reich, and in the 1950s and 60s. And the interesting thing is that these two societies, the American one and the German one, kind of um, grew apart since the 1980s, as in, in Germany, comradeship uh, was increasingly seen as the evil, per se, whereas in America, it was uh, it has been praised nonetheless. Well, that that is a very interesting insight, and um, at this point, however, I think we have taken up an awful lot of your time, and I'd like to start to draw our interview to a close, Tomas, and I'd like to do so with our traditional final question here at the New Books Network, and that is, could you share some of your current research projects with our audience? Yeah, I'm happy to do so. Um, I have to say I've concluded my research on the Second World War and, and masculinities and uh, these things. I currently work on a, I, I mean, <clears throat> as an immigrant to, uh, to, into this country, to America, I am uh, deeply, I'm kind of fascinated, sometimes I'm also a little worried about contrasts between uh, German history more recent German history on the one hand and American history on the other hand. So different, I mean, almost antagonistic political cultures and so on and so forth. Also antagonistic ways of dealing with what we may call uh, the evil past. So Germany, in the German case, it's the Holocaust, uh, the evil past that the country has to deal with. In the American case, it's slavery, uh, the as many people say, genocide against uh, Native Americans and other uh, uh, burdens. And um, in my new book project, I try to figure out uh, the differences, also some commonalities, but mostly differences, differences uh, between the memory cultures and memory politics of these two countries. I mean, Germany dealing with the Holocaust, uh, America dealing with the legacy of slavery and the plight of Native Americans in this country. And I think these, um, the way these memory cultures have developed uh, are rather different. In Germany, you have a, an increasingly kind of a, a self-critical attitude towards the Holocaust and the German society's involvement in, in the Holocaust that in a way helped uh, Germans to reinvent themselves as a allegedly self-critical uh, nation, uh, whereas in America there is no such common uh, view on its past. I mean, you have a deep division of this country, as you know, in kind of you could say uh, in a way in a blue and red America that uh, materializes in many uh, regards, but also in terms of memory politics. On the one hand, you have if you, you many Americans are ashamed of the legacy of slavery and other things. And on the other hand, you have a, a kind of memory culture uh, that praises uh, Confederate virtues and Confederate monuments. And uh, in a way, I mean, I, I shouldn't say <laughs> denies the legacy of slavery, but um, is inclined to um, marginalize it. And my current book project tries to explore these antagonistic memory cultures, Germany versus the United States. Well, that sounds like a very timely uh, book project. It also sounds like it would make for a great future episode on uh, the New Books Network one day. So hopefully uh, when you complete the project, we can have you back on the show. I would be honored uh, to talk again. Thank you so much. <laughs> I enjoyed talking to you. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, thank you for giving us your time today, Tomas, and for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, you have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Tomas Kühne. We discussed his recent book, The Rise and Fall of Comradeship, Hitler's Soldiers, Male Bonding, and Mass Violence in the 20th Century, published with Cambridge University Press in 2017. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll continue to listen.